Glad to see you made it back to the Space of Justice, the podcast where we explore more than just space. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm your host, Michael Betsecond, and my pronouns are he, him, his. It has been said that technology can become the great equalizer, but having lived remotely for over a year, many can attest that that couldn't be further from the truth. With inequalities of things as simple as network speed and general device capabilities, we've created a digital space of haves and have-nots. To throw the entirety of student success on whether or not, you know, name the service provider, is or is not working well that day, feels more than a little iffy, you know, like leaving educational fate of all students, especially marginalized ones, to nothing better than chance. Today, I'm joined by Duke's own Dr. Nikki Washington, professor of the practice in computer science, an illustrious career and a lifetime stalwart in the ways of advocating for digital, racial, and gender equality. Dr. Washington's work has taken her everywhere from Google to the federal government. The author of Unapologetically Dope, Lessons for Black Women and Girls in Thriving in the Tech Field is a guide and a witness to both the obstacles of being in tech that Black women and girls face and just how best to navigate the proverbial minefield. Dr. Washington, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This is an honor. So, you know, just so that our audience can get really, really cozied up with you, can you do me a favor and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from and what your relationship is to Duke and Durham, areas of interest in your research, pronouns, and I don't know, throw in a fun fact about yourself that you find interesting. Sure, so my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Uh, I am a Durham native, so born and raised right here in South Durham, a product of Durham Public Schools. Um, I earned my bachelor's degree from an HBCU, Johnson C. Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina, and then from there, graduate school, NC State. I think, My experience growing up here in Durham has impacted a lot of my uh, professional experience and the work I do. I tell people it was a very unique time uh, being a Gen Xer in Durham, which has such a rich history of uh, Black excellence. And so being surrounded by parents who were HBCU grads and a mom who was a computer programmer turned manager and a dad who was a K-12 teacher turned administrator as well. Uh, And then having the parents of my friends who were also my parents' friends be uh, black educators and attorneys and entrepreneurs and engineers and researchers. So it was it was always a situation where my friends and I were pretty much shown that we could be and do anything we put our mind to, that we were our only limit. And it was really beautiful, but even in the same space of that, we still had to fight marginalization at different times, but it was so much more helpful having that representation and having real life superheroes who looked like you, who showed you and helped you navigate these spaces. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it became really important as I progressed in my career to uh, do the same for other students. Because it wasn't until I got to college, really, that I realized how different and unique my experience had been. And so uh, even I tell people, as I graduated from graduate school, I I had the intention of going into industry, right? I wanted to make money. And I've been in school for nine years, so I'm tired of school. Let's, Let's stack some paper. But in that in that <laughs> instance, I just I was not fulfilled in my first job. And the opportunity presented itself mm. at Howard to 
start as an adjunct professor, but they were actually looking for a full-time faculty member tenure track at the time because uh, the one faculty member they had had left. It was a white woman, but they never had a black woman in the computer science department at Howard. And I thought, how crazy is that in 2006? So uh, that was kind of my leap into the academic space. I was always uh, advocating for students who look like me, especially black students, to pursue graduate degrees in STEM and degrees in STEM. And so it just became a natural fit for me because I knew I could make a difference uh, for students. First for students who look like me, but then even after I left Howard, I realized the importance of students who don't hold my identity, seeing me in spaces like right. faculty positions yes. and uh, positions of leadership. Yes. And so that's how I kind yes. of transitioned into the work that I do now, which is really around cultural competence and computing. So a lot of my work before was broadening participation in computing, even from K through 16, but I started to realize that none of this will matter if the students who don't hold these identities are not understanding the ways in which uh, the systems that are in place, the people who are in positions of privilege or power are uh, marginalizing and impacting students on an everyday basis. And not just students, but also yes. faculty who hold those identities. And that's something that I don't think we talk mm -hmm. about enough because, uh, especially in computing, because we are in a situation where um, if I'm a black faculty member, I am often just as marginalized as my students. And, and people don't think of that mm. because we're supposed to be in a position of power. So it's really been important for me to pivot my research in this space, which leverages a lot of social science and brings it to the computer science space. So uh, that's a little bit about my right. work. I think, what's a fun fact about me? So I love music. I'm a huge karaoke fan. So COVID and this entire year okay. of staying at home has kind of thrown a wrench in my entire karaoke tour. Uh, but I can pretty much, whatever city I'm in, I can find a good karaoke spot. Okay. I figured you might at this point have like broken down and bought the whole, I think there's a iPad app that, you know, will do the whole karaoke thing. You get the microphone that goes with it. You didn't want to do all that. I'm thinking about it. I, I have thought about it. I have this mic. Um, and I did, I do have a mic, but I guess the, the idea is, do I really want to drive around and just belt out at this point? But I'm thinking about bringing it to my classes since we're remote right now. Why not? Right. Something to break say, the ice. I don't see why you wouldn't. Yeah. Right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the thing is, we and there's so much research that points it to it, right? If if students can see you as human, mm -hmm. they can find a reason to relate with you. And I think that that to your point of cultural competency, you know, like you're looking for all ways specifically of folks that don't look like you mm -hmm. to believe you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that seems like a real easy way. Oh, she knows Shania Twain. Oh, she knows that song. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what I've been trying to do since it's so funny you say that, um, I've been trying to bring something that's relatable to class every day. And usually it's music. So in one of my classes, which is larger, the programming class, I usually start it with music, but I start all of them with music. Um, but the other class I tend to reference every single day. It's a personal challenge to bring up a TV show that I've watched or that they should be watching that I'm watching. And so uh, that's Fair always enough. interesting to watch the students chime in. Cause I think I brought up billions one time and the students said, well, I'm not caught up yet. So can you not give any spoilers? But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So I just, I have to ask, does your nerddom reach outside of your academic space? Does your nerddom 
leech into like the comic world? Do you watch WandaVision? Are you expand of the MCU? I just have to know. So I'm not a huge MCU fan, uh, but but let me say when I say fan, I'm I'm talking super fan. I enjoy uh, okay. the Marvel movies. I have not watched all of them, but I have uh, a good deal. So probably about six or seven, enough to understand everything that happened between Infinity Wars and Endgame. So I caught up on some other ones in the, in that okay, space. Perfect. WandaVision, I absolutely love. I have. Uh, I think I've been singing Agatha all along yes. for the last two weeks and will continue. <laughs> um, the trap version is especially resonating with me. So, yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll have to There's send you that link. There's that? a trap version of Agatha all along. Please send that to me. Absolutely. It'll be my pleasure. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you so much for just being willing to share all of those things. Uh, I think my favorite part of interviewing um different folks has been asking the thing that folks are excited about by them about themselves so uh your love of music and karaoke that that one that one's gonna stay with me for a little bit (laughs) (laughs) so i'm a big believer that in life the work that needs your specific hands finds you how did you come to the work that you're doing i mean you kind of set it up a little bit in your in your opener there talking about your parents but how did you decide that the thing that you're doing now is the thing you wanted to do? There are a lot of there are a lot of students and a lot excuse me a lot of kids who grow up and they look at their parents and they're like, oh, you know, I like what my parents do, but I don't want to do that. So yeah. why was this something that resonated with you? So let me say I like that that how did you phrase it? The work that you do or the work Oh, that the you work do that you're doing you. find yeah, the or the work that needs your specific hands finds you. That. I love it. Um Honestly, I never thought I would go into computing. Uh, So I wanted to be a business major, but I took programming courses uh, from about eighth grade to high school. And it just so happened that the faculty who was teaching the intro programming course my freshman year convinced me to change my major from business to computer science. Um, So I always had this space from there of getting more students into it. But what really moved me in the last Mm. few years were some of my negative experiences in the field. Um, And I've been very candid about my experience uh, where I was denied promotion at my prior institution to full professor twice. And the reason that I was uh, given was that there uh, were student evaluations that noted that I was disrespectful, rude, and mean, and that I should consider adjusting my teaching strategies to better engage students from different backgrounds and knowledge levels. And I know that this was a course that was a non-major course. It was a course that I taught a heavier load of. Uh, than anyone else. And so it significantly impacted my evaluations. And I remember there was a conversation that was had around me bringing up, there's a a ton of research around uh, biased student evaluations, especially with black women. And I'd even noted it in my application. And it was kind of a, well, students complain about everybody, Nikki, they're just immature like that. And I said, well, wait a minute. So they're immature when it comes to complaints, but they're mature enough to critique my effectiveness as an instructor, you can't have it both ways. And so right, right, right. So I was literally asked, how do we get students to like you? And it became this thing of, it was an onus on me 
uh, of how to fix this situation. And I had to tell them, I am the victim here. Like I, this is not something that I should have to do, but even still I said, okay, well, when certain things happen and students come to complain to you, you should ask them, would they complain uh, the same about you or any other white man in this department? And it was kind of a, what will that do? And I said, Mm. it's going to show that Mm. it's a bias in place, but your pushback tells me everything I need to know. So don't worry about it. Um, And from that point on, I knew I had to Mm. do something myself. Now, what had already been happening was in the course of these reviews and annual reviews, I was getting feedback the same, like, well, students are complaining about this and how do we fix it? And I I remember even being asked to come in and speak to another faculty member who's not anything in psychology or, or any place where they would have expertise. And I'm told about how I should start sandwiching my critiques better, right? So, oh, Nikki, just try a positive, negative, positive. And I kept thinking, you want me to effectively change who I am for the sake of being liked for faculty course evaluations instead of focusing on are the students not learning? Nobody's ever, every time I ask them, no, they say that you're a great instructor. Well, how can I be a great instructor and these things are happening? So, One way, uh, which one of my colleagues uh, from another institution told me was start recording your lectures. So I thought that that would help. Right. So one, I used it as uh, this is an opportunity because we didn't have the equipment to uh, record our lectures for students. But if I'm moving too fast, then here will be an option for you to uh, have that information. But it served as receipts for me. Right. Um, And it still didn't work. Because uh, it wasn't reviewed and and nobody looked at it. So I said, okay, well, what else can I do? I've got to start looking at where, what are people doing in other fields? And that's how I started digging around into social sciences. And I started first uh, in the field of social work. I looked uh, then into uh, sociology and psychology. And I started learning about cultural confidence. And I kept thinking, well, if all of these other fields are training students and graduates to go into these spaces in their careers and work with people from specifically vulnerable identities in ways that they can effectively engage and communicate with them. Why aren't we doing that in computing? Because it seemed to me logically that if students were to understand more about the biases that they had when it came to uh, women faculty or black women faculty, then they would be more cognizant of it as they progress through the course and especially on the evaluations. So I started to say, well, gosh, exactly. We're not doing this. And then outside of even that space, I thought Mm -hmm. the bigger picture was we should be able to now, if we start teaching these things to our students, when they graduate, they're going into environments where they're creating technologies that are no longer harmful because now they are thinking outside of themselves and saying, what happens when I develop this app or this new technology and how is it going to harm people from marginalized identities? But, uh, so that was really my motivation. It was very self-serving at first, but it had a much broader, uh, perspective and use because I knew that my experience was more common than not. And from my peers who were black faculty in computing, I knew that they had the, especially black faculty at predominantly white institutions, they were having some of these same struggles. So it was a way of how do we start to address this? And is this viable enough that I can make it make sense to other computer scientists to start doing this? Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, the fact that it it moves from being about, let, let's just call it what it is, about survival mm-hmm. and moves from being about survival to being about how do I ensure other people are safe? 
Mm-hmm. One, that speaks a lot to who you are as a person. But secondly, it actually disavows the statements that were being made about you by mm-hmm. your students. Mm-hmm. Um, and your sounds like subsequently your colleagues, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, no one believed you enough to investigate further than, well, this is what it says on the paper. I can't, I right. can't change that for you. Right. And isn't that the story of black women in general in this country, right? We end up inadvertently yes. saving everybody else because we're just simply trying to save ourselves. Yes. Yes. Uh, can, I can just run the list of recently known black women who everybody goes, thank you, Georgia, Stacey Abrams, for yes. making sure that we didn't capitulate. And, you know, thank you, Philadelphia, which was all organized by black women for yes. making sure we didn't capitulate. Like there's so many of these conversations that are happening in very you know wide open space. It's funny that you would bring that up. I had a conversation with a colleague that was talking about moving from um, being in the north and moving down south and then moving back up. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no, no, no. I remember what it was. It wasn't a conversation I had with a colleague. I was watching a webinar. Um, that's what it was uh, with um, Michelle Lanier and um, Deb Willis and Allison Janae Williams. Allison Janae okay. Williams. And, uh, and, and um, she makes this statement. She's from South Carolina. Originally, she had moved for the first time outside of the Mason-Dixon line to go to New York to do career stuff specifically. Um, But she was like, it was funny to me that only a handful of months ago, you know, uh, many in the Democratic caucus believed that black women of South Carolina from South Carolina were deemed as low information voters. Mm. But these are the same voters that energized to make sure that, I don't know, Joe Biden stayed on the ballot so that he could mm-hmm. be able to be elected later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was not primaried because of those women. Right. So like, right. it just is really interesting that black women become, uh, become superheroes. They become yeah. superheroines in times of need, but every other time, Mm-hmm. You're just the doormats. Absolutely. It's frustrating. It's absolutely frustrating. And it's also kind of why uh, you saw so many Black women, especially over the last year, that have really not believed a lot of these efforts because it's kind of a, mm. well, we've seen this before. This is all cyclical. So uh, right. get at me in 2022 and let's see, are you right. still concerned about anti-racism like you claim to be right now? Um, yeah. And, right. and even in the computing space and STEM in general, I think that's a really big issue and concern. Um, when that black and STEM and black and the ivory came out over Twitter mm-hmm. and other social media this summer, um, that was the biggest issue that a lot of black women faces. OK, well, what now? So you say you saw it. You say that you've had these different workshops and you've read all these books. But what does that mean in the next academic year when possibly outside may open and things go back to some level of normalcy that there was before. Are you still going to remember all of the things that you read about? Are you still going to remember that uh, polite racism is still racism? Or are we back to the same kind of uh, one, two step that we had before? Right, right. And there's still going to be an expectation that I'm not allowed to bring my full self anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I most appreciated about Tressie McMillan-Cotton's interview with uh, Trevor Noah, 
and mm-hmm. she yep. was interviewed about thick and she talked about the fact that she refuses to code switch anymore. And it was so powerful mm. because we grew up being taught that that's the only way we can survive in these white spaces is to make, make them as comfortable with our presence and existence as possible. And it was great to see a woman of that stature, a black woman at that level say, no, I refuse to do it because it gave so many of us the same power to say, yeah, we refuse to as well, right? right. We're not going to do this right. anymore. And it's stressful. It's it's a tax on you mentally, emotionally, and physically. And in a time where we're still dealing right. with COVID, with racism and beyond, the fact that I now need to still make you comfortable, I don't have the energy or bandwidth to, to worry yeah. about that anymore. Sorry, not sorry. No, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, we can go to Audre Lorde's uh, essay on the erotic where she's mm-hmm. talking about, you know, the marginalization of that as a function because we are afraid of the fullness of black women. Yes. We don't want you to stay. We don't want you to ever be in that space because should you be in that space, somehow we are oppressed by it rather than acknowledging that if you get to be a hundred percent of yourself, we all win. We are mm-hmm. all benefited by every human being being allowed to be a hundred percent of themselves a hundred percent of the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I love that you you started this discussion surrounding the questioning of, are you concerned with anti-racism in 2022? Because I think in some ways we got to start with defining what that even means to even know if we can ask people if they're concerned with it in two years or at least a year from now, theoretically, right? right. So how do you define it uh, both professionally and personally for yourself? And in the field of computer science, is there a consensus of what that definition even is? Is there even a conversation about that definition? Huh. So uh, how I define anti-racism, I would use the analogy that's given by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum in Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Because I think it's so easy for anyone to understand where um, racism is kind of that moving walkway like we have in the airport or wherever else. And uh, the the active racist or the overt racism are the people who are walking with the, the runway and getting to the destination faster. Uh, but the passive people and passive racists are those who are just kind of standing off to the right, maybe checking their phone and just going with the right. flow, but not doing anything. And those anti-racists become the people mm-hmm. that say, nope, don't want to go there. Turn around and actively go against the tread to get back to the original destination because they know they don't want to be in this same um, space and going towards the same destination as others. So that's how I see anti-racism as that you are actively working against the systems and the powers in place to disrupt and dismantle them. Um, I think a lot of people say that they're anti-racist, but they're not. And to your point about uh, what's Mm. happening in computing, I would honestly say prior to 2020 and specifically late May 2020 and the death of George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd, especially uh, people in computer science were not Mm. talking about racism unless you were directly impacted by it. So that meant you were usually black Mm. and indigenous. Um, you had wow. black people all over the space that have that have been talking about this, but it was always like, oh no, you know, right. that's not it. Or you were so marginalized and isolated at your institution that it wasn't safe to do so, 
right? Because a lot of people were still trying to get tenure. Um, and, And so now what we're seeing is that Again, with that black in the ivory hashtag and the power of social media, it brought attention to all of these stories of black people in STEM, be it students, faculty mm-hmm. and staff. And so all of these uh, white and Asian people in computing especially had to pay attention because uh, it's out there now. And so to that right. point, I think it's it's right. opened up a lot of conversations now. But there's still a very, very long way to go. Uh, you have people who want to learn and do better, but you still have a large group in computing who feel like there is no issue and that this is just some sort of, quote, woke culture that's just now trying to police everyone. And we can see that with uh, the responses to, for example, Timnit Gebru on Twitter uh, and the things that she tweets about her experience and the... Uh, the men, usually white men who are trolling her and sending emails and attacks to her and her supporters and collaborators. And so I think that uh, there's a long, long way to go in computing. We are so behind for a field that is so ahead of the game in terms of everything else. They are so far behind the curve when it comes to all of this. Uh, And and the only thing that we can do is what I tell everyone uh, right now, especially those who hold those marginalized identities. We cannot afford to let people take their eyes off the ball. We can't do it again because the minute we do, Mm -hmm. they're going to say, nope, it's over. We fixed it. Remember, we read all those books and, you know, we're done. That's it. Mm -hmm. We did some anti-racism training and we're great. But that's not enough. Right. We always talk about and a lot of people are paying attention to the racism and the bias in the systems and the technologies. But they're unwilling to talk Mm -hmm. equally about the racism and bias in the people who are developing them and the people who are teaching those and graduating those individuals. And that's where we have to start focusing. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, 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 that last thing that you're saying is so logical. It's true to form. Like, why would I expect if this thing is, 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 I don't know, spewing poison, Mm -hmm. that means that someone put poison in it. It didn't Mm -hmm. just naturally generate it. It's, it's, it's only, we understand if you're you're thinking about computer logic, it's only going to do what it's informed to do. Mm-hmm. This is why even when in the world of artificial intelligence, we're having a conversation surrounding, is it true that it can learn enough to learn outside of us? And the answer is always going to be no, because it has to have someone who puts an input into it initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always this conversation around data, right? And we right. it's just the data and the data is informing the algorithms, but we're not even teaching about the racism that exists in the data that was collected and why that data says what it says. Um, And on top of that, we don't even address the biggest elephants in the room, which are the people who are still racist or problematic in our field. And that may be students, that may be faculty, that may be staff. And wherever it is, uh, especially at the higher education level, we have done nothing. And that's been the biggest aha moment to me prior to 2020 and kind of why I started doing this work a few years ago was there's been so much push at the K-12 level around broadening participation in computing. Mm. And then you look at the industry level Mm -hmm. and there's all of these efforts like, oh, we want to diversify and and have uh, gender parity or racial parity by X year. 
but we're not even looking at the place that could make the most impact, which is in higher education. And it was always crazy to me to say, why are we looking to industry to fix this? Because people have already graduated. And a lot of people who are problematic will say, well, I spent four or five years at an institution. Nobody talked to me about this. I learned about programming, algorithms, complexity, and all of these other topics. So if it mattered, then they should have told me then. It's not the time for me to worry about it now. Right. Um, and if nobody told me right. in my years at insert PWI that this was a problem, then why are you supposed to tell me it's a problem now? Because it's not broken for me. So if it's not broken, I don't, for me at exactly. least, why am I worried about fixing it? Exactly. Exactly. And I think even further, you know, the, however we practice is how we play. Yes. So that you train into someone what the expectation of them to do indefinitely. I, I use this example all the time. Serena Williams backhand, which is one of the most dangerous backhands in mm -hmm. all of tennis ever. That backhand started when she was like eight years old. Mm hmm. And even if you took it apart and she retooled it, it still is existing in the same space as the eight-year-old who started that backhand. Mm -hmm. So if we don't put it into the beginning, we will never really be able to see it show up later. Absolutely. And it will always be this insidious, burdensome thing that is on the people who are oppressed to solve mm -hmm. rather than the people who are making it to start fixing. Yes. Absolutely. And I love that you said you play how you practice because I tell my students that all the time. Um, and, and you're absolutely right, which is why I always give the analogy of how we teach programming, even in computer mm. science. Right. You have this intro class that students take in their freshman year. But after the first year, you don't say or that first course, OK, well, we don't need to teach you anything else and you're ready to roll. Right. You infuse right. it throughout the entire four year sequence. And we have to start doing the same with these topics because it's not a one off. Yes. You can't check a box and say, well, I did a exactly. diversity training and so I'm good to go because we see that does not work. And for a lot of computing departments for the longest time, right. we have these ethics courses. But the problem with those ethics courses is they can talk about everything from cybersecurity down to uh, maybe a little bit of AI and the issues uh, that come about from a social aspect. But we're not talking about these issues of racism, of homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, misogynoir. So why are we not and where do we put that in our sequence? So that's mm -hmm. why it was really important for me mm -hmm. to start doing the work I do and teaching right. the courses I teach because that ethics course tended to be in a later year. So usually your junior or senior year was well, too late. Right. Right. You've already right. learned everything and, right. and you've already weeded out so many students. So if you start this earlier, then yes. now you have the likelihood yes. of not just making it better for um, the students who will progress, but the students who may be lost because of uh, the sense of belonging and the otherness that they experience. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and to to that point, you know, as somebody who did grad program, in a, in a, I'm, I'm a Duke MFA grad. And I mean, this is no, uh, no secret. One of the things that I struggled with, with the program is that I had to go other places to find myself. Mm -hmm. So you put the, you know, when you talk about students that leave for a sense of belonging, you put the burden again on the student who's already trying to figure out their educational aptitude, right? Mm -hmm. Their academic acumen. They're already trying to navigate that, but you put the burden of the social pressure of mm -hmm. 
I'm experiencing this thing or am I experiencing this thing? You put it on them to then have to go find themselves. So I had, I mean, thank God I I had now a colleague, Courtney Reed Eaton at the Center for Documentary Studies was able to come right alongside me, you know, link up arm in arm. um, And she walked with me. Same with Haris Martinez. Like I can name a whole list of people who showed up in a big way to be there so that I didn't, when I was like, am I being gaslit? They could be like, yes, you are being gaslit. Um, so, you know, I I can imagine sticking that earlier in the sequence. One, let's just be honest. There's few, few people who could probably teach that it's gonna have to be a faculty of color, probably a faculty with African-American heritage. Like that's probably going to be what it's going to have to be. And that means that out the gate, I'm going to see somebody who either a looks like me or B doesn't represent something that I expected to see. Yes. So I'm yes. complicating the narrative from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. So, which is necessary, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and you, you begin to make space for everybody in different ways to begin to push the boundary further and further. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm I'm very interested in in you know kind of pivoting to this notion of space. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you define something? like just space. I know that that's what our, our uh, committee is focused on and is always wanting to kind of interrogate. Um, how do you focus on something? How do you define just space? How do you, or spatial justice, specifically within the virtual and physical world? Hmm. So I think from a physical aspect, I look at spatial justice as how are services and resources made available? Who are they made available to? How is that distributed? But then also, how are those decisions made with respect Mm -hmm. to the distribution? And more important, who gets to make those decisions or who has a seat at the table? Now, when you Mm -hmm. translate that to a virtual space, I think that some of that still applies very much so. Um, So you still look at how are services and resources made available, Um, especially what we're seeing right now in in a time of COVID and everyone being remote. But more important, I think from a virtual space, I look at uh, who gets to create and who just gets to consume. Because you have to think about Mm. that as well, right? We see a lot of times where, Mm -hmm. and this goes back to the point about, right, technology is supposed to be this great equalizer um, and all of these barriers that it's supposed to remove. And now with the click of a mouse, you can just, you can improve your entire quality of life. But can you? If you look like me, how easy is that? Um, We look and see every single day, one, that um, creators of color, uh, specifically uh, in the tech space, founders of color have the hardest time getting capital to uh, sustain and grow their businesses Mm -hmm. and get buy-in. But then you see uh, basically mediocre white men and women who get millions to grift everyone and everyone's okay with it. And then they just disappear out, fan out, and right. there's no big deal. But there's this automatic assumption of uh, white is right, right? Even in the tech space and in this mm. um, in this creator mm. space. And I'm not talking about like the creators of right. like Instagram or social media content. I'm talking about creators of the Instagram, the Twitter, and the Facebooks, right? Uh, because if we have spaces like those, right. then it right. breeds and makes space easily for other creators to consume and use it. Right. But um, that's been one of my biggest concerns is that we don't even have 
the uh, same equitable distribution of resources when it comes to startups and building the next great technology. Right. I can think back. I think I remember when I was in grad school, Black Planet was a thing and Mijente was kind of the Latinx mm-hmm. and Hispanic version. But I don't even know who created that. Was it a person who identified as mm. Black or Latinx or Hispanic? I don't know. Uh, but again, how are we making space in this realm for people to own and not just consume content? So that it takes it to another level for me there. But then you also look at, um, yeah. I'd say even in the technology that's created, um, it's not just. Mm-hmm. So it there is, for example, mm-hmm. we talked about the healthcare software that's in place, right? The race adjustments that are made uh, based on somebody being black and their uh, ability to receive proper health care being impacted by these adjustments that automatically just assume because a black body is supposed to be more muscular that they don't produce as much creatine, for example. So they're not uh, they're not at risk for kidney disease. Or uh, if I am uh, the algorithms that look at health care costs and spending and then determine that white patients need more health care without considering the fact that maybe black patients don't spend as much because they can't afford to. Um, and, and so all of these issues right, that come right, into play, right. um, again, right. are, are leaning back to who gets to create and who just gets to consume. Right. And then even if you consume, there's still a right. ton of marginalization and levels of justness in there and justice. Wow. So, I mean, basically, this is a spiraled, insidious, ongoing, deep thing that we have to really tease out at every level if we're going to actively expel white supremacy and patriarchy, you know, at this. And let's also be honest, in capitalism, at the core Mm -hmm. of this thing, because Mm -hmm. in all of those designations, someone loses in a way that ends their life. Yes, um, you're you're making me think of Bettina Love. She made a statement talking about incrementalism. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's this this move towards incrementalism that has been, and, and I'm a big proponent of incrementalism. I'm not trying to dish on it, but there are times where we need to go faster because of the severity of the thing that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Bettina Love makes this statement. She goes, "While you're relishing in your incrementalism, we're out here dying in the streets." Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and. And to that point, um, I also include the idea that uh, Rua Benjamin put out of the new Jim Code, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's the same kind of regulation of blackness, even in a digital space, as well as a physical space. Um, the, I think it was just a week ago that uh, the New York Police Department released Digidog, which is their new uh, yep. surveillance technology that looks and moves like a dog. And all of the issues yep. that come with now adding surveillance in communities of color, especially. And yep. and what are you doing? What data are you collecting? How is this being used um, nefariously against people of color? Right. All the way down to, you know, this predictive policing. What is the impact on all of this in spaces where now I can't even move physically, but also digitally, you're also taking away my uh, my mobility, my freedom, my access. Right. It's it's mind boggling that these technologies are being created and no one is thinking about the impact. 
and what it means on uh, people, specifically the people who don't hold these identities. And I keep coming back to who are the creators? They're all of these computer science graduates usually. Who are the computer science graduates? They're mostly white and Asian men. Well, what is that? Where are they coming from in terms of schools? Predominantly PWIs. So what's happening in the schools? What are we teaching them? Programming, operating systems, networking, algorithm development. And like I said, this one quick course may be on social impacts of computing. But other than that, there's nothing. So where are we showing them that what they're doing is problematic? And if we don't, then we'll continue to keep creating these issues and that techno chauvinism like Meredith Broussard talked about, which is that, you know, everything tech is the solution for everything. And it's not. It is not for so many people. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. The the, you I I had not heard about the um, the Digidog. I had not heard about that. So I'm like letting that sink in because in a lot of ways, I mean. We, you know, we, we talk about, you, you asked the question of the nefariousness of the data being collected. Well, I'm always curious, like if you were to go into other communities, you know, if you're going to wealthy white communities and collect the same amount of data, I'm sure you would come up with the same problems because mm-hmm. you would have enough data to, algor- uh, to, to aggregate that there mm-hmm. are issues that require over-policing, that require over-surveillance. Yes. But yes. I mean, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And we've had the conversation of the difference between, you know, if we go back to the 70s, the difference between a crack conviction and the difference between a cocaine conviction. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I feel in large part we're we're reset. We're reasserting that and we've just moved to a different space to do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And not only have we moved to a different space, but we've empowered average everyday citizens to now also be uh, additional uh, regulators, right? Mm-hmm. So you have all mm-hmm. of those technologies like next door, citizen, mm-hmm. neighbors, where you have all of these vigilantes now who, uh, to your point, they're not worried about policing or uh, monitoring the safety of their own neighborhoods, except for when a black or brown person shows up that they don't think belongs. Because if they focused in on everything right. else that was going on, then we would see some of these uh, similarities. But at the same time, what we see is that, oh, there's a, a black person walking down the street and he doesn't have a dog or he has a hood on. So we need to be concerned. And these it's empowering all of these people to now um, mm. continue to take away the space and the uh, yep. freedom of people unbeknownst to them. And that's the bigger part is that I don't right. even know it. Right. I, people exactly. are just showing up and, exactly. and, and there's all of this data right. that people are sending and collecting on me because I just happened to walk past their ring doorbell and now I'm a suspect, but I was just trying to walk to the store or walk my dog. And now it's a thing. And I have this engagement with police or, now. or, or they just wanted to go walk. Yeah. I'm just trying you to just live and exist. to go be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> right. But everything is a problem. Everything is an issue. And we've we've allowed people with technology to now um, further marginalize in these spaces as well. It, it's it's mind boggling to me and it's right. scary. Right. No, I, I totally agree. You know, it's it's funny you talk about that. I think that some of these virtual technologies give many folks a false sense of reality mm-hmm. because, you know, that's that's how we've 
we organize ourselves and you know even so even more so you know as as we've gotten into this pandemic life you know we've used it to supposedly bridge the distance between people you know um but it doesn't necessarily overcome some of the physical things because it doesn't allow us to be able to develop real empathy with one another mm-hmm. um and you know thinking about this especially in a time where keyboard warriors are more empowered to spew hatred because of the anonymity of the screen you know, what are ways that you're digitally connecting and making space for your students meaningfully? So it's been really hard. Um, And I say because I never envisioned teaching any of my courses fully remotely, um, especially uh, that race, gender, class, and computing course. Um, So for Mm -hmm. me, it's been important to try to figure out how to create a safe space, but then also make sure that every student is seen particularly the Mm -hmm. students who come from these identities that have long been marginalized. So I make sure that I prioritize and center the voices of uh, those who hold these marginalized identities. For every topic that we cover, I am making sure that people who hold those marginalized identities are the experts in the room. So the pre-review material, the reading material, any books, any TED Mm -hmm. Talks, podcasts, you name it, there's always um, the centering of the most marginalized. And I think that that's helping students to not just see themselves if they are one of the students who uh, shares that identity, but more important for those who don't, it helps them put things into perspective and develop empathy. Cause it's not just me as a cisgender, able-bodied privileged in terms of class, black woman, right? It may be, for example, a trans woman of color who uh, we're sharing their story or a, uh, a black person who has a disability. So for those reasons, uh, I think that that helps. It helps develop that empathy because you're not hearing someone who doesn't hold that identity just talk to you and lecture you about it. You're hearing from the actual right. people. Um, the other thing that I think has been uh, really important for me has been making this class accessible, uh, accessible to the point that mm. uh, we take away some of those barriers like uh you don't need a computer, for example, to, or you need a device, but you don't need a computer like to, to write a program or submit anything. All you need is a basic, if you have right. uh, just a smartphone or a tablet, that is sufficient to get through this course. Um, all of the material is free. It is publicly available. So mm. it is primarily TED Talks, primarily uh, podcast episodes. So students can consume it uh, in whatever way makes the most sense for them. They don't have to worry about being in front of something and reading um, heavily. Even all of the books that they have to uh, choose from and read for reflection, they are all available via the Duke Library for free. Um, So that's been really important as well for me. Um, Making this as accessible as possible um, with minimal types of barriers in place, but also making sure that I prioritize and center the voices of experts. And it's not just in computing. So it's, for example, we, we include right. Audre Lorde, right. we include uh, Simone Brown, Rua Benjamin, Eduardo Bonilla Silva. Yeah. We include um, yeah. seen on radio episodes, code switch episodes, uh, all of these ways in which the experts are the people who have those identities. So it's not necessarily the book, the book expertise, and it may be the degree right. as well as the lived experience, but it's always going to be the lived experience. What do you see as the role of the university ensuring that kind of thing 
one, but the also digital spatial justice is created and facilitated. So I think universities will have to one, uh, bring people to the table, prioritize. This is probably first up. Second of all, Mm -hmm. bring people to the table and make sure that that table represents uh, every one of those identities across race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, class, uh, and ability. Also making sure that there is some level of accountability in place uh, to creating that space. Because people can say that they're going to do things and people go off and do them, but who's coming right. back and and holding feet to the fire to say that this did or did not work? And that has to involve the stakeholders, which right. will include the students first and foremost. Right. Uh, but it should also include faculty and staff as well. I'd also say that there need to be requirements on all university faculty, staff, and students uh, in these types of initiatives and efforts. So there should be something, regardless of your Mm. discipline, that is requiring you to develop some level of cultural competence that will ensure that you are always uh, considering and developing this empathy that you need to have. And then I think one of the biggest things for a university and even this university to think about is the fact that access does not equal equity and it does not equal inclusion. Um, And I think a lot of times people, organizations, and especially universities think that um, that is the case. And I I love Anthony Jack's Ted talk, access ain't inclusion. Right. And how, and I tell my students, and it's one of the books they have to read is uh, the privileged poor that just because you all show up to a Duke, doesn't mean you all show up in the same space, right? There, there are students who are homeless. Right. There are students right. who are who have other challenges that they are facing. There are students for whom sense of belonging and their othering is significantly impacting their academic experience. And if we don't start to understand exactly. that, then we are failing all of these students because just because they're able to get into Duke does not mean that they're going to remain here or just because they're in any university. It doesn't mean that they'll remain if there's nothing in place that ensures that the environment is inclusive and equitable. Right. Well, and even if they do remain, right, right, exactly. And and even if they do remain, it doesn't mean that they'll thrive because at the end of the day, the thing that we're asking our students to do is thrive. We want them to have these meaningful, impactful life-altering moments in their time here and it shouldn't be meaningful life-altering because it was traumatic yes yes i um and i've had conversations with several students since i arrived at duke um and i i was it was alarming to me but i knew what was happening when i first announced that i was coming to duke this summer i felt like every single black student in engineering and computer science connected with me on LinkedIn. I was like, wow. But I knew instantly what that meant. Uh, and you so- knew what you were doing. <laughs> right, and so the students who I've met with and I've had conversations, and some of them are current students, some of them are alum. And I asked them, so how was your experience here? And without fail, every single student has said, not that great. Every single Mm. one. And it's heartbreaking because Mm. I know my four years, I was always told growing up, college is the best four years of your life. 
You are going to meet some of your lifelong friends. It is going to be an amazing experience. And for me, it absolutely was. I would pay money to do it all over again. And so for me, it's heartbreaking to see uh, Black students, especially mostly Black women, who are telling me that their four years in college were not great because they weren't seen. They were marginalized. They dealt with bias, not only from their uh, faculty, but also from classmates. They were heavily othered. Nobody listened to their voices when they presented things to people. Um, and and right. what do you do with that? And now you've graduated and right. you move on, but and you, now you're dumped into environments where it's just a replication in college 2.0. So you don't even have an idea right. of what an enjoyable and an inclusive and equitable environment looks like because even while you were learning, you were still fighting struggles that you just continue into as an adult now. And what right. does that do mentally and right. emotionally to someone? And how much are right. we, like you said, steering people out? Because I see a lot of graduates who who realize, well, this is just like college. I, I'm good. I'm not going to do this. And then they leave the field. So how do right. we retain students who look like us when these are the issues and this is the experience and no one seems to hear them until uh, someone like me shows up and then I'm the one who I get it because I am you. So right. now I have to kind of process all of this and carry this, but also be able to fight, like you said, for them, knowing that I'm also fighting for myself, but also knowing we're all tired. And so at a certain point, right. who else is going to step up to the plate if it's not right. us? Who else is going to step right. up and do it to make sure that uh, we we shift the paradigm and basically not even shift it, just dismantle everything that's in place? And I mean, and you go back to the statement of why is it that it's the job mm -hmm. of the victim mm -hmm. to figure out the path mm -hmm. to prove the offense? Why mm -hmm. is it the job of the victim to figure out how to not be victimized anymore? Mm -hmm. Because when you show up and you said like, yes, as much as I'm fixing this for you, I'm fixing it for myself. It's because no one has taken the time to realize that, hey, we might be injuring some other folks in here, let's us do this work to make the space accommodating mm -hmm. to whoever's coming in next. And I think that there's always this assumption a lot of times at PWIs in general, where if it's not overt racism, then it's not racism. And right. if it's not, if I'm not actively working against you, then I'm not I'm not against you, but I'm not actively working also to be inclusive and equitable right. with regards to you. And I think that that's the part that we tend to miss so much. And it's not just um, PWIs. I think that it's specifically in computing as well, because everyone tends to think that because they don't wear a white hood or, you know, carry some sort of flag that they are not a problem. And we keep trying right. to get people to realize that, it's bigger than that, right? Those are the ones that at right. least you know where you stand and you know how to deal with it because right. you're going to stay away right. from it. But it's the casual, right. polite, covert racism that happens every single day, like the tone policing or just the questions mm -hmm. of, did you really get in here? Or, wow, I guess it was easier for you to get into this university because uh, you're black, right? And those kinds of conversations right. that happen right. casually in a breakout right. room or in a lab day that totally throws off the self-confidence 
of a black student. Yep. 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 And then, you know, uh, ironically enough, uh, I was told one of the, the retort that I should have when someone asked me if I got in because I was black is, oh, no, I think it's more difficult for me. I don't have a trust fund. There you go. There you go. <laughs> but like, I, I don't want to be combative in that way. I don't want to have to come back at you. I just mm -hmm. want you to see me as a human. I want you mm -hmm. to see all of my humanity and I'll see all of yours. And then we can sit down and get to a place where maybe you have some stuff you want to ask me. Mm -hmm. And because we're in community and relationship with one another, I'm okay with you asking that. Yes. Maybe that's the whole point of this whole thing. And yeah. so like, I remember, you know, when, when I was at Duke, there are plenty of times where as a, as a grad student, there are plenty of times where I felt very out of place body mm -hmm. spite, like, you know, very much imposter syndrome, very much. I'm nervous, you know, that, uh, that somebody's going to think I'm somebody else. So I would always come in. Uh, I put on what I called my armor. My, my grandfather passed away in 2019 and, um, I got an opportunity to inherit all of his dress shirts. Oh, nice. And so I would wear his dress shirts when I would come to, to school because I felt, nice. I felt armored up. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was putting on my family to go with me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I remember the first day the daylight savings times happened. Um, and, uh, it threw me all the way off. Cause I was, I was actually in, uh, the Rubenstein art center and I was walking down back to, to what's known as the carpentry shop where the MFA EDA exists. And it was dark and all of my classmates had gone on without me. And so I was like walking back alone down campus drive. And I texted the group of my classmates and I said, I just need you to know if something happens to me, I was just walking back to the carpentry shop. I didn't do anything. Mm. And there was, so in my cohort, in my cohort, there were, we had a lot of international students who were inter international students of color, um, but we only had two black students, me being one of them, they were from mm. the United States. And my other colleague, she texted me privately and she's like, where are you? And I was like, I'm here. She's like, literally, you are going to text me every moment until mm -hmm. you get back to the shop. Mm -hmm. mm. She was like, I can't talk, but you are going to text me because I need to make sure you are safe. And she was the right. only one out of my entire cohort who thought well enough to do that. And so... Yeah, that that safety of the precarity that I have being at the school, because I don't know if you think I'm supposed to be here. I'm constantly having to check. I'm not checking myself for myself. I'm checking myself because of you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so we get into this whole conversation of internalized self-policing. Oh. So like the way that your student shows up, if they're if they are a very truncated, small version of themselves, we have research that talks about tall people trying to make themselves smaller and ending up with scoliosis and all kinds of other back problems because they were just trying to appear diminutive so that they weren't intimidating. Mm -hmm. And like, what does that do for a student? What does that do for you as faculty right. who are trying to constantly govern yourself on behalf of someone else just Absolutely. for living? Absolutely. It's, that was heartbreaking to hear. Um, but you know, and, and 
I hate to say it, and it's so unsurprising for a number of reasons, right? Um, I remember there was a talk I saw uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva give uh, somewhere online, and he talked about how campus is essentially a sundown town for a very long time. Mm, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, that that hit me as soon as you started uh, discussing that. But um, And the greater relationship between Duke and the greater Durham community, right, is, is one that is right, right. with right. racism. Um, and so it's really, right. it's scary to know that one, not just so recently you had to have that experience, but two, only one of your cohort members had enough presence of mind to understand why you sent that text and what was happening. Um, and that, that again, speaks to this level of privilege that people, there are some people who just, they get yep. to just show up and be. Yep. They don't have to think about anything yep. else other than the work, whatever class that they're attending, whatever work right. they're doing. They never have to think right. about all of these other things that are happening. And it's exhausting. It is so exhausting to constantly have to regulate yourself right. before fear of what right. someone else is going to do to you, not even what they think of you, what they yep. will do. Because we were all taught, yep. don't worry about what people think about you, but but when it comes to physically harming you, it's just, it's mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's scary. It's absolutely yep. scary. There's so much work to do. There's so much. And what does that it mean is. now, it again, is. when people have cell phones and can do whatever, right? A cell phone, cell phones don't yep. seem to be enough for black people uh, when it comes to justice at all. Nope. Everything's on tape nope. now and it does not matter. You can have right. all the documentation in the world. Right. I, who was it? Michael Che, who recently made a joke about that? Yes. On Weekend Update? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, and That's it should be noted. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> black history lesson for them. Just because they got you on tape doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. It does not mean a thing. Oh, man. Oh, man. So, you know, I think one of the things that we have to we're, we're constantly having to hold specifically right now, like prime example, we're not in the same space together. Normally, we'd be mm-hmm. sitting down in a studio on campus. We'd have this mm-hmm. entire conversation and we would have probably gone to lunch before or after. I don't know, something of that nature. But you're at your house. I'm at my house. So we're having to think about covid as we're processing so much of our life right now. From your perspective, how is the virtual learning and living space potentially injuring students and faculty, and most notably students and faculty of color? Um, So I think there's a couple of ways, and I'll start with faculty. I think of those faculty who are tenure track and who uh, have research that they're conducting, research groups that uh, they're working with and what that means in terms of their productivity, uh, what it means in terms of their tenure clock, if they were given any adjustments or how is it Mm -hmm. going to impact their application when they go up? Uh, Because again, if they have a research group, then students are being impacted as well. So is, are they as productive as possible when everyone's kind of stressed out and dealing with all of this Uh, on in addition, mm-hmm. there's just the mm-hmm. the work life balance that no longer seems to be a thing because everyone is at home. Yep. And so it's almost like you're living at work versus working from home. Um, with right. the student side, it seems like 
There's so much. There's the issues of just Zoom, right? So uh, do mm-hmm. I want people into my personal space at home? Um, do What if I'm dealing with a faculty mm-hmm. member? Because for some reason, there are still faculty who feel like that students need and should have their cameras on at all times. So what does that do when I'm forced to keep a camera on now? But I, what if I don't want you to know or see my home environment? Uh, so there's that issue. But right. then also there's the issues of um, a lack of community and safe space uh, for students and faculty of mm-hmm. color, but especially for students. Right. Because right. It, when you're on a PWI campus, there are very few spaces that are yours. And so when you create these communities, part of right. that is the gathering and being able to just uh, be in each other's presence, pour into each other, just shoot the breeze, enjoy seeing more faces that look like yours. You right. can't have that now because right. you only can do it via Zoom. And if it's only via Zoom, right. there's still the risk of it being infiltrated and hacked by right. someone, right? right. Um, and then there's right. these issues of uh, just mental health, like stopping and thinking right. and extending grace and giving grace, especially to students. And like I said, students of color and faculty of color. I, I As much as COVID has impacted communities of color, especially, it just seems commonplace that everyone would stop and think that sometimes there's bigger things than that deadline or that assignment that you wanted them to get done. But it it still does not seem to be the case. Um, And that's for across the board, uh, regardless of discipline. Also, I think that there's the issue of... um, Access again. We're back to this. Uh, just because you're in an environment doesn't mean it's inclusive. And it's been interesting to me in my right. classes. I've heard some students have discussions about classmates who uh, did not have technology, the necessary technology for class. And I look at that in a computer science department. So uh, some some disciplines you may be able to do a lot of stuff on a tablet or on a phone if necessary. But I teach a programming course, which means you need to have access right. to the uh, development environment. You need to be able to um, submit things appropriately, uh, write code, compile it, run it, test it. What happens if all I have is a tablet and a smartphone and now I don't have a, um, mm. a, a, a computer or a laptop and, and no one's thinking about all of these things when we move to a remote space um, in the context that every student is here. But every student that's here is not coming in at the same level in terms of access and right. Right. and resources. Right. Um, but I think the biggest part for me is community. Exactly. And as a new faculty member, I feel like that's what I've really lacked, right? Because I spent my entire first year at Duke remote and I've met a ton of black faculty, but we all had to be very intentional, right? So we had to reach out, email, get on somebody's schedule for Zoom. Um, there are things and events that have been scheduled yep. for black faculty and through the black think tank even, but it's so much harder to build community and relationship when you're all sitting on a computer after you have Zoom fatigue because right. this is month 13 and here we are still right. in this same space. 
um, it's so much more organic if you're in person. And I think we lose that. And in spaces where we are one of the few, if not the only, we need that that gathering and that organic communication and involvement. Well, and then, you know, even further, like just the function of the modality of the space. So when we're in person, if you and I are cutting up about WandaVision over in the corner, yes, they can have whatever discussion they want to have wherever yes. they're having it. Very and we're true. not disrupting. We're not the only people having a conversation. And I think that even in something as simple as that, mm-hmm. like, because, you know, you used to be with your, you would be with your friends and like, you're having a conversation, somebody else having a conversation. You stop talking for two seconds because somebody says something yep. and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll remember that. Oh, that was great. Yep. And then you go back to your conversation. Yep. And like, that thing is gone. Like you can't do that in a Zoom space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and they've, they have all these ways that we're attempting Remo and a bunch of other platforms that are attempting to recreate that, mm-hmm. but there's nothing like the aural, yes. like the binaural ability. Your brain is so much smarter than any piece of tech that we'll ever come up with. And especially now in this mm-hmm. day and age. So we're just going to have to lose that until we're able to be back in space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can imagine just how difficult that that time has been just trying to find yourself even, especially coming back to Durham, you know, mm. Durham's making adjustments. So you're like, I don't even know where the new spot might be like. Right. Um, no. And, and yeah. 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 Well, if it's any consolation, I have been on my job since May of last year. Mm-hmm. So I have never been in my office. Wow. So I this has been my only office. This is at home. So. Um, wow. So I've never worked near my colleagues. I don't know. I don't even know what that dynamic's going to be like when we get there. Yeah. Like pseudo excited slash terrified. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, and like you said, I think it's just, I, I like the ability to get up and move. That was always Same. the great thing about being an educator, right? You're not tied to a desk. Everything I've done this academic year is everything I never wanted to do which is why I never went into industry. I never wanted to spend all day in front of a computer. I like to talk and, and engage with people and here I am. And it's yeah. it's overwhelming. You know, I just kind of want to people watch. I'm a huge, just go plop down somewhere and yeah. just watch all the crazy that goes by. Can't yep. do that. Yep. Can't do it at all. Um, one of the best people watching spots in Durham mm-hmm. uh, is at the mall. And if you, so there's two really good ones. One is the food court. Actually, there's three yes. really good ones. One's the food court. One is, uh, especially at, um, at South Point, they have that big oval on the second, uh-huh. second top. If Nordstrom is to your back, uh-huh. you can see people coming down the escalator. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So oh the food court at South Point is a case study in just. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> everything that is bonkers and diverse about Durham <laughs> in one fell swoop. I love it. And the other especially thing. Especially around the holidays. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say the holidays is the best time, especially to watch right over there around Nordstrom. Nordstrom. Yes. So my mom and I will sit there and watch. Uh, the Santa yes, and, how, and yes. the people that come and the crazy that shows up. Cause you'll have people uh-huh. who bring five dogs and uh-huh. then right behind that, there's somebody with a child who does not want to be there. Uh, yep. It's just all over the place. It's yep. some of the best. You're right. You are yep. absolutely right. It's some uh, of so any and everybody. Exactly. Exactly. And I will be honest with you. People watching allows me not judgment wise, but allows me to be able to be an, a human being. 
Like yes. I'm like, oh, we I'm allowed to do that. I can do that. <laughs> okay, that's what I'm doing. All right, and that's what we do it. Like I, <laughs> the, the number of times that that's where I've been like, oh, okay, I'll, I feel good about myself now. Like I can do that. Right. right. It's like, <laughs> oh, 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 okay. So okay, I'm good then. All right. All right, right. <laughs> I think the second best place is Cheesecake Factory. All of this yes. is at South Point. Cheesecake, especially while you're waiting, because there's yes. they they don't really have a queue. You just kind of stand there. And yes. if you can look outside, I like to stand in between the like in the airlock is what I call it. It's when the outside door and the door to the inside. Yes. Because you can see out and you can see in at the same yes. time. Mm. Yeah. Warm days around that circle right there yes. with Crate and Barrel Cheesecake and the movie yep. theater. Yep. Because it's it's yep. a mess. It's it's alive. It's interesting. It's <laughs> it live at five all the time. Oh, yes. All the time. <laughs> if you ever need some people watching Friends. Yes. We we are your Call people. Yes, <laughs> we are your please. people. <laughs> so as a as a non-tenured professor of the practice at a primarily white institution, I understand mm-hmm. the precarity of the next question. Mm-hmm. So if you feel you cannot answer it, that is fine. We'll just simply move on. Okay. Last summer, Duke digitally engaged in a campus-wide conversation during its symposium chaired by Dr. Sherilyn Black called Living While Black at Duke. It then received $60 million from the Duke Endowment expressly to increase faculty diversity on campus. As one of only two black women in your department, what type of advocacy work are you engaging in to shift the culture and potential hiring practices within your department? Yeah, so happy to answer that. Um, So first up, I think right around the time I started was when Living While Black happened. So that was my introduction to Duke <laughs> as a faculty member. Um, and I thought it was really great. I I, yes. I have um, consistently, I, I made my mom come back and watch uh, Eduardo's talk because that was my introduction to him. And I was like, oh, I've got to meet him, him, him. Right. Um, and uh, he's known as one of the T.O.s on campus. We were like, oh, uh, you, yeah, you, you've been you seen T.O. Silva. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and it's so funny because I read his book, but I was like, when I listened to him speak and I was like, oh, he is, he is somebody I want to go have a drink with. And uh, true Mm -hmm. to form, he did not let me down when we met over Zoom. It's probably one of the most (laughs) enjoyable Zoom conversations I've had. I was in tears the entire time laughing. Um, I believe it. (laughs) And Sherilyn, Sherilyn's so great. I met her probably a couple of years ago when I was just home for the summer. But um I really enjoyed living while black. I thought it was uh, it was especially poignant for me. I think as a Durham native, seeing uh, mm-hmm. most important the staff part. That's the part that stuck out to me because the students and the faculty. I I know because I live that every day. But giving voice to the staff um, because I know so yeah. many people growing up whose parents worked for Duke and Duke was that place that you know if you if you get a job here then it's a pretty good job. Um, so having them have that voice was was great. I think um, one of the things that, I, well, there's a lot of things I've been trying to do because it was really important for me to be able to thrive. So you've mentioned that a lot of times, right? Mm-hmm. Having the ability to thrive as a student, uh, even more important for me as a faculty member was where can I do the work I want to do and not be um, pigeonholed or compartmentalized into some space that I don't want to be in. And to right. Valerie Ashby and Mohammed Noor's credit, they gave me full carte blanche. I remember my interview in February, 
And I interviewed with both of them at the same time. And Valerie asked me in a very matter of fact way, you've you've been tenured twice at two institutions. Yep. You know, this is a non-tenure position. Yep. And she said, so how do you feel about that? And I said, "Um, I'm going to be honest. I'm a black woman with a PhD in computer science. So I think I'll be all right um, in terms of just job wise. But I am not concerned about tenure. My concern is being able to thrive in my job. So when it comes to the next position, I want to be able to thrive more so than I want to have tenure. And she said, Mm. I'm so glad you said that because now I can have this level of real talk conversation about uh, what you want to do here. And the things you want to do, you can absolutely do here in a pot position. And you will have access to some of the best social scientists and researchers in the field and resources And you will have the support of administration behind you. And Muhammad sat beside me and, yep, nodded the whole time. And I looked at them and I said, say less, where do I sign? And when I walked out of that meeting, I went home and I said, I have to get this job. Because um, Mm. I knew that having uh, someone who looked like me at the time, understanding the work I wanted to do, being excited about it, meant that I was going to be given the space to do what needed to be done. Now, when I arrived, that is exactly what's happened. And to the credit of my outgoing and incoming department chairs as well, Pankaj Agarwal, who was the chair at the time I was hired, and Jun Yang, who's the chair now, they have made it very clear that um, they support me 110% in what I want to do. And and what I have wanted to do was enact change for those students, specifically those ones who were telling me that they did not have great experiences. So I've shared with um, Mm. my department chair, like, look, I've I've met with a lot of students and it was pretty organic. They wanted to meet, they just wanted to share. And in my first question, I shared the same experience that they said they had. And I said, there's something that's missing here uh, with what's going on from the faculty side. And I think the faculty are, um, the faculty think that the culture and climate here is something that is completely different than what the students are experiencing and telling me. And I think that it's important that the students have a little bit more agency in, um, in making their needs and demands known. And so one of the things that my department chair uh, gave us the green light to do myself and Shawnee Daly, we put together a department climate survey. And so that survey will ask every student, whether they are undergrad or graduate student, to uh, give their responses on um, the the ability to create diverse, equitable, and inclusive environments from the perspective of the chair, the faculty, the staff, their peers, and the TAs. And so we are planning to roll that out this month. We will do that every single semester. That's awesome. Uh, What we will do with that data, because the computer science department is the largest undergrad department on campus, we should be able to get some pretty good feedback. But what we want to do is take that and every semester, um, get that information, code it up and present it to the faculty and present it to the faculty in a meeting and say, this is what the students are saying, not what you think. This is what the students have said are the issues. Mm. Now, what are you going to do about it? And then every semester um, coming up, there will also be a town hall. 
And that was the thing that I pressed is that you all don't know what the students think because you're not listening to the students. And we need to give them not only a voice, but we also need to make them aware and understand that we are working to improve the situation. And the only way we can do that is if we put something in place where we are accountable to them. So every semester we need to hold these department town halls where, and I told them, just like Living Wild Black, you collect that information in the prior semester. You work on it over the break. And then for the ne- for that spring, or in this case, the fall semester, there's a town hall where we present anonymously the high level things and maybe some of those comments individually um, that are anonymous. But we need to then speak to the students and say, we heard you. Here are the concerns you presented. Here are all of the ways in which we're working to address them this semester and beyond. And every yeah. single semester that needs yeah. to happen because that's the only way that students will ever believe that we are actually trying to create an inclusive and equitable uh, culture and climate for them. So that's one thing, um, right. which I think will be very helpful um, especially for a lot of the uh, larger faculty to start to understand that um, just because the loudest voices in the room say it's okay, doesn't mean that it's okay. Um, Now, the other thing I think is um, this training that we put in place for the 3C Fellows Program, uh, which is training not just computer science faculty at Duke, but computer science faculty across the globe. And so Every semester or every academic year, we will have a cohort that works through some of uh, these topics around identity, how it impacts students, how it impacts colleagues, promotion, tenure and hiring, advising of undergraduate and graduate students. And even like I said, hopefully you and Cisco Mm -hmm. will both join us for the one um, on our closeout around how to teach these topics in spaces, especially because these are things that we are never taught about. We're never taught, not taught about, we're never taught how to teach them, right? We don't, we're not even taught these things. As a computer science student, if I had not attended a liberal arts undergraduate institution, I wouldn't have taken some of the courses that I took. So if we're always worried about trying to stuff these credits, these credits into 120 credit hours to meet ABET accreditation requirements, then where is the space to learn about these topics in ways that are meaningful and equally, if not even more impactful on the technical content that we learn. So it's my goal to make sure that we get some more uh, Duke faculty, hopefully the entire department through that process. We have about three faculty right now who attended this cohort. So in the next cohort, I know several faculty said they would participate, but timing wasn't uh, well good for them right now. Um, There's also, we were fortunate enough that uh, myself and my colleague, Xiaowei Yang, we uh, submitted an application for the Confronting Racism uh, solicitation on campus. And so with that faculty seed grant, we're going to introduce a speaker series. And that speaker series will always be bringing in experts to talk about racism in the context uh, and anti-racism in the context of computing, not just like I said before, the technologies, but the environment. So there are a lot of, um, and again, prioritizing the voices of the people of color who look the most like them. So right. Um, that's anybody from uh, Rua Benjamin, Ebony McGee, all of these people who are talking about these topics in different ways, but uh, but people need to know about and hear from. So these are some of the ways that I'm looking to um, improve the culture. One of the other things that I'd done was when I was looking at cultural competence, I'd started seeing all of these different assessments that were in place uh, for other areas, like if you were in healthcare 
or uh, social work. And so I said, well, can we create something that would be able to measure cultural competence for computing students and faculty? Uh, one, because everyone in computing is always quantitative, and that's part of the problem. Nobody thinks right. that qualitative research uh, is, is valuable. So I said, well, how can we uh, use this to quantify a score, but then use right. it to infuse right. and, and um, engage other qualitative research? So I developed this survey that we tested over a couple of semesters and validated and tested for reliability. And so now that's being distributed as well in some of the uh, lower level courses. So the 101, 201, where everyone comes in at an entry point, and hopefully that will be able to uh, gauge longitudinally how have students improved cultural competence as a result of other activities right. uh, within the department. So hopefully, knock on wood, those make some kind of impact. Right. Um, you know, you have to start somewhere. And, and yeah. my thing is that, you know, these are, uh, these are immediate things that we can start to do just to build a better rapport with students and build a level of trust. Um, there's also some work that I was doing with um, the Computer Science Accreditation Board, which is the computing arm of ABET accreditation. Uh, right. They've tasked out their uh, commissions with creating some sort of DEI criteria that every department who's ABET accredited will have to uh, have to demonstrate. And so I was invited to participate on that. So hopefully that will be something else uh, that will start to impact not just this department, but every department. Because uh, as I started to do my work and, and try to figure out how do we get courses and work like this required for all students, there was always going to be pushback because everyone says, well, we already have 120 credit hours. We're trying to cram everything into. But the one thing that never right. changes is if ABET says you have to do it, no matter how much you kick and scream, we'll get it. it done. And so uh, right. to me, that's that's probably the final piece of the puzzle that I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out, uh, because that expands reach, not just across the country, but globally. So, yeah. Right. I mean, you're you're basically saying like that's the structure we have to infuse this in. Yeah. If that structure says that we have to do it, we got we don't have a choice. Yeah. What What do you believe is the responsibility of Duke towards its students with respect to accessibility of equitable digital environment? I think that there's a huge responsibility that is placed on Duke specifically. Um, I think that one. You have to think about accessibility in terms of two ways, right? So there's accessibility for um, information and, co and communication, especially in terms of people for whom uh, who may have disabilities. Uh, but there's also the accessibility of people based on other identities like class, race and gender even. Um, attitudinal is one way that one of the barriers that needs to be addressed by the university, right? Um, mm. Thinking about things in the space of less of a deficit model and more of just inclusive and focused on the people who, for whom need the understanding, the people who lack the ability to empathize, mm. the people mm -hmm. who lack the yeah. ability to create these inclusive and equitable environments. So taking it away from the people marginalized and basically putting the spotlight on the people who are the oppressors. Um, and sometimes that will have right. to be the university itself, right? Um, the policies right. that are in place, right. the people in positions of power. Um, but it takes, it takes a lot of self-awareness and gut checking 
and discomfort. I will say that um, mm-hmm. I have been pretty much surprised by the uh, efforts over the last year that I've seen uh, from the university in comparison to other institutions and peers who are at other institutions. I think right. that uh, there's a level of intention here versus some other places. Uh, but again, I think that it's important that mm. they that people not be let off the hook easily because you make a little bit of progress and right. you know create a couple of web pages and websites, then all is well. Um, I think there's also the issue of policies that we have to look at and address those barriers, um, whatever they may be, right? Um, some of them may be in how, mm-hmm. how we handle promotion and tenure, how we handle um, students who may be falling behind with um, any type of probationary status, right? We have to start looking at the, the whole instead of just the what is happening right now. Um, I think also that right. there needs to be, uh, there's going to have to be a way for the university to uh, address some of those social barriers again. And I'm not sure how they can do that in this remote space. Um, because it's just really hard. Right. Um, and I think until we are back mm. on campus, that's going to be one of the most difficult, but probably one of the most important ones because we can teach all of this stuff all day. But if people aren't able to be out and engage and interact with people to uh, build those muscles or that muscle memory and how to be empathetic, how to right. uh, be more culturally competent, we're always going to be in this space of constantly teaching and just it's going in one ear and out the other because, all right, I got through the class and that's it. And I'm right right back in another Zoom, another Zoom for another semester. Right. The university itself, in order to create an equitable and safe digital environment, there's still so much to address on the physical environment. And until I I don't think one will happen without the other. Um, And so But unfortunately, the digital space is primarily what we're in right now. Um, And so hopefully in the fall, if we end up back on campus and and people are uh, back primarily in the classroom, that the university will prioritize uh, making sure that spaces physically in seats, in office hours, on campus, whether you're in the CAF, wherever else, that these are priorities that extend past 2020, past COVID, past a lot of the Black Lives Matter protests that we saw over uh, the last year. Um, and we yeah. always make sure, like I said, we just keep this on the forefront. We we have to, and the university has to keep all of these topics at the forefront of every student and every faculty member's minds. Because the minute that the university like just slacks off a little bit, then that's going to be the day that it's, again, it's over. And Everyone's going to complain about why are we still, why are we doing this again? Because we fixed it last time. So to the university still, like I say, to individual people, you cannot be allowed to take your eyes off the ball and you cannot allow everyone else to as well. Uh, Not just because of what we owe to the students, but what we owe to the greater Durham community. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was awesome. I had such a good time.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Space of Justice. If you like what you heard today, be sure to stop by sites.duke.edu backslash JustSpace for the recording of this past year's Just Space Week, Duke University's conference centered entirely on the conversation of spatial justice. This year, Just Space Week was focused on anti-racism, equity and connecting Duke to Durham, and meaningful and just collaborations. Head over to sites.duke.edu backslash JustSpace backslash conference to check out the recordings today. A special thank you to Dr. Nikki Washington for sitting down with me today as she walked us through some of the current realities of confronting white supremacy in the computer science world to make space for those on the margins. To buy her book or connect with Dr. Washington, head over to either www.nikkiwashington.com or hit her up on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Nikki W. Again, that's Nikki with an I, www.nikiwashington.com or on Twitter at dr underscore n-i-c-k-i-w. Today's episode was logistically possible because of the brilliance of Elmo Oriana, Paige Vinson, and Lindsay Miller-Furness. Our web presence is possible only because Terracardi makes it so. Francesco Santos and Matt Stark are the genius minds behind our assessments and analytics. To the fearless podcast team of editors and collaborators that consist of Samaya Faison, Ling Jin, Ezra Uzan Mason, Brian Lackman, as well as the Just Space Conference Chair, who was pulling double duty this year, Kevin Erickson, thank you so much. Thanks to Marcy Edenfield's crew for making sure our equipment specs are just right. Just Space Conference marketing is handled by the Illuminous Sarah Neff and Sam Babs Keen Eye. Keeps us all looking perfect and synchronized. Catherine Lester Bacon and Victoria Krebs ensure our online marketing design is tight. As always, Jeff Nelson and Gina McCullers are the tireless captain and first mate of the Just Space Committee. Tasha Curry Corcoran is kind enough to ensure that the Office of Student Affairs at Duke University keeps us going one more turn around the sun. Our theme song, Gariba, is by Lasana Debete, and as always, engineering and mix of today's episode is by yours truly. Be sure to check back for the very last episode of the season next Tuesday. A very special non-sponsored shout out to Zencast for making it possible for our team to do remote recording sessions safely while in an international health crisis. Please remember to continue to wear a mask, wash your hands, and even though the vaccines are here, remember that we're not quite at the finish line just yet. Also, be sure to get your questions answered so when it's your turn to get the shot, you can. As always, it's been a real pleasure to spend some time with you today, and I cannot wait to see you for the last and final episode next week. I'm Michael Betsecond, and this has been Space of Justice.